We have a difficult passage to look at today. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Um, there are probably, I would say this way, there's probably no one in this room that has not been affected by divorce and remarriage. It is a hard subject. My goal today is not to shame or guilt or uh, stir up anything, but we want to address the subject as it appears in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Let me make six introductory comments before we uh, dive into the message. And whether you're listening to it now in this room and have been affected by it, or you listen online live streaming, or later on, um, it is important that you understand the context for what we are trying to accomplish. And number one, let me just say godly people disagree on the subject of divorce and remarriage. An obvious statement, but it needs to be said. We could think of a continuum on one side where it's no divorce, no remarriage, to the other side where there's essentially any reason for divorce and or remarriage. And uh, along that continuum, we all know godly men and women who would have very different views on the matter. And so we want to be civil and kind and good Christians as we discuss and debate even some of the different positions. Secondly, one message on the passage will not address all the ramifications of this issue. It's just impossible. And so what we do at Fellowship is we go through a book of the Bible. Typically, we teach expositionally, meaning we look at the passage in the context in which it was written. What did it mean for that audience? How did they understand it? And then the bridge, which is hard, how do we apply it? How do we understand it? How do we interpret it today in our current context? Third, our goal in all of study of exposition is to be more like Jesus Christ. Uh, I think we forget this assumption, this presumption. The goal of the Christian life is to look more like Christ the longer we live. We call it maturity. In order to be conformed more, to be transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ, I would argue we need biblical knowledge. We need a critical thinking theologically of how we understand that biblical knowledge and then the ability to apply it to our lives. That is not simple. And frankly, it is lost on the majority of churches in our country to, to look at the text carefully, to study what it means, to understand it thinking theologically, and then what does that mean for us? I've shared many times with you my concern and prayer. We look so much like the culture. How do we differentiate a Christian from a good person? Uh, to be a believer in Jesus Christ is to be conformed to be more like Christ, not like the world's identity, not like the world's assumption of Christ, but to be transformed into who he wants us to be. The question for me every year is, am I any more like Jesus than I was last year? In a way, it's an immeasurable question, but I think it's a good one. If I'm not a little more like Jesus, then I don't think I'm growing. Maybe you have a different way of measurement. Go for it. But at the end of the day, if you and I are not more like Christ, is it a fair statement to say we're not growing, we're not maturing in our faith? Fourth, attempts to list the reasons that God permits or allows divorce or remarriage is really, a, it, to begin there is a very poor premise. To run to the, okay, what are the reasons the Bible says we can divorce? What are the reasons the Bible says we can remarriage? And there are books written on biblical divorce and biblical remarriage. And as much as we may applaud the effort, we're going to see what Christ does with the question in this passage, which is often missed. He's going to talk about what marriage is, not the exceptions to why people divorce and when and if they remarry. To understand a high view of marriage is where we begin, not with reasons to divorce or reasons to remarry. Five, 
The main point is to understand God's holy design for marriage is one man, one woman for one lifetime. A heterosexual, monogamous relationship until one of you dies. That is God's intent. That is his design. That is not what our world is telling us. That is not what our culture is telling us. That is not what the courts are telling us. Don't let the world teach you theology. Begin with the one who designed the marriage. One man, one woman, for one lifetime until one dies. That was his intent. And six, divorce nor remarriage are unforgivable. Um, it, for too long, perhaps those who've taken a, a more strict view of nor, no divorce nor remarriage have been too hard. For too long, there's a punitive, a shame base to that. I don't want to shame anybody. I don't want to make you feel ashamed. I don't want to make you feel miserable. But I want to look at what the passage says and what Jesus says about your relationship and mine that we call marriage. Sin has consequences. And let's be adults and look at those consequences. Well, I hope you'll stay with me. Let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. He's leaving from the north area called Capernaum, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to go down to Jerusalem. This is the last time he'll go to Jerusalem, because there he'll be arrested, he'll be tried, he'll be crucified, he'll be He'll, be, he'll, he'll die, he'll be buried and resurrected. So this is his last time where the crowds are coming out <clears throat> to hear him. His popularity continues to grow even late in his ministry of this three years public ministry. And it's interesting that wherever the crowds gather, the footsteps of the Pharisees are not far behind and the antagonists come along once more. Notice the way Mark says it very briefly. His, his gospel is very compact, but it's also deliberate and intentional. Once more, he's teaching them. This is who Jesus is. He's a teacher. Um, we live in a very experienced, emotionally oriented culture. Nothing wrong with being in touch with experience and emotion. I'm not vilifying that. But when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, he taught. Wherever he went, whenever he went, he was always teaching. You can't take the concept of teaching out of Jesus' life and have anything left. It's the primary verbal activity, whether it's a parable, whether he's talking to individuals, where he's along groups of people, whether he's dealing with the Pharisees who are his opponents and antagonists, he's always the teacher. And this, again, I would encourage you to reclaim a thinking Christianity. He's teaching us, even still, if we're willing to be taught. Well, the Pharisees set a trap in verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Now the crowds nor antagonists are ever far away from him, but remember these traps were not just to catch him up in a saying, they're trying to kill him. It's been clearly stated in all the harmony of the Gospels, they are now intent on killing this man Jesus to eradicate the problem because he is gathering a crowd storm and it is a threat to the Pharisees and the scribal system, the religious leaders of the day. Now the Pharisees understood Deuteronomy 24, primarily the first four verses, as the prescription for a divorce. In that part of the law, uh, there, the, the divorced woman was to be given a certificate of divorce. And so the question they're asking them very specifically, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? Now there's general agreement to the Pharisees that yes, a man had the legal right to divorce his wife. 
there is no agreement on the grounds for the certificate or the divorce. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, the agreement that a husband could initiate a divorce. The certificate was an important document. We don't know a lot about it. But what we do know is, is, very, is very sure. We do know that a husband could divorce his wife not for adultery with the certificate, but could give her a certificate that would send her essentially home to her family of origin. If her parents had died, obviously she would go to her extended family. The certificate was to be written by him, and accompanying the certificate, which is not often known among Christians, was the dowry. When she was married, her, her father gave the husband-to-be a dowry, a large sum of money, a property. That dowry must be returned with the certificate. Think of this as an Old Testament provision of a financial umbrella policy. If he's going to divorce her without cause, not being adultery, if he's going to send her away for something that's displeasing to him, he's got to give her the certificate to show she's not an adulteress. And when she goes home, she's taking her dowry with her. If she doesn't have a parent of origin, if her parents have died, that would serve as a way to care for her in that culture in antiquity. And it's rarely noted that that certificate included her dowry. Now, we can clearly say the certificate ratified the divorce. Well, we must be cautious. It did not give universal permission for remarriage. Hear me again. The certificate ratified a divorce. It did not give a universal permission for her or him to remarry. And that has to be kept in mind in the context. Now again, the Pharisees understood it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife, but they disagreed on the grounds, on the reasons for divorce. Isn't this still the case? Christians are on this continuum. No divorce or remarriage, or you can remarry a divorce for these reasons and remarry for these reasons. And we have all sorts of views of those. Probably uh, a limitless discussion would occur between those two bookends, right? So the scribes and Pharisees had the same problem. Why? What are the grounds for divorce? Um, there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shemaiah. Rabbi Shemaiah held the strict view. Rabbi Hillel held the liberal view. Shemaiah was what we might call, for conversation's sake, no divorce, no remarriage. Hillel was the one who said a more lenient view. You can come up with different reasons. So the scribes and Pharisees, like many issues, are themselves divided. The question specifically, is it lawful? For a man to divorce a wife. And so they're going to appeal to Deuteronomy 24. They're going to say there's the certificate there, but we disagree on the grounds for divorce. So this is part of the trap. Now, the Pharisees agreed that the husband could initiate the divorce, but notice in the text there's no provision for the wife to divorce the husband. There was no Jewish provision for a wife to divorce her husband. It was a man's world. Sorry. In that reality, though, we have to look at the grounds for divorce. If adultery was the issue, they would be stoned to death. It's not a divorce. It's a different day and a different culture. Now, the trap was also laden with a number of levels. You may remember the story of uh, John the Baptist, who took on Herod because Herodias divorced Philip, and then he, she marries Herod. And John the Baptist called out Herod for this in Mark chapter 6. It lands him in prison and eventually cost him his head. 
So in the backdrop of this John the Baptist tension, he would have sided with, Shem, with uh, Shemai, a more strict view. And so they're setting up this trap in lots of layers. If Jesus agrees with that, then he puts himself at odds with Rome. And this becomes important a little later, because under the occupation of that time, Roman occupation of Jerusalem, uh, the Jews who want to kill Jesus don't have any means by which to execute him because they're occupied, let's call it a police state, a military state, Rome. Rome had the authority to give capital punishment or to put somebody in prison, not the Jew. So the Jew really has, has his hands tied, the Pharisees that want to kill him and trap him. So they're very, they're, they're brilliant, they're lawyers. Do I need to say any more? They're lawyers. And think of all the different angles, the way, and the politicians to boot. How do we wedge this and play this that best sets up a trap for what he says that we might use that information later on? The division, of course, exists between the Pharisees on the grounds for divorce. John the Baptist took a particular view. If Jesus goes against John the Baptist, that creates another problem. So they really feel like they've got him boxed in. I don't think it's far-fetched to think that part of their trap was this won't hurt us because the Romans will come, they'll go, well, that is a pretty good point. After all, Herod killed John the Baptist for taking on this issue. Now Jesus' answer in verse 3 is typically rabbinic. He answers a question with a question. Look at verse 3. And he answered them and said to them, what did Moses command you? Now let's back up just a second. Moses is the knockdown punch of any question about the law. Moses wrote the law. Moses got the law from God on Sinai. Not just the Ten Commandments, the so-called Decalogue. He got the whole corpus of the law from God. Moses spoke to God face-to-face, -face, metaphorically. He got something from God, and he is the knockdown punch. It's very safe to say that most of the scribes and Pharisees would much more uh, submit to what Moses said or taught than Jesus even those who were sympathetic to Jesus, if Moses said it, that's the, that's, the, that's the ace card. There's no way you can debate if Moses said something. They're setting him up. They're asking whether it's lawful under Jewish law, don't forget that, for a man to divorce a wife. Jesus' response, what did Moses command you? Let's go back to the source. Does it you don't care what I think other than a trap. Let's go back to what you care about. You care about what Moses taught. Notice his question, although it's just one word, command you. Now what did he permit? What did he command you about this subject? Listen to John Grasmick who writes, In ancient Israel, adultery was punishable by death, usually by stoning when the guilty was guilt was clearly established. By Jesus' time, which is about 30 A.D., the death penalty is dropped. The rabbinic law compelled a husband to divorce an adulterous wife. So again, keep in mind, under Roman occupation, they didn't have the freedom to take someone out and stone them to death. Under Jewish law, that would have been the case for adultery. Under Roman rule, under Roman law, the best they could do was allow him to divorce that adulterous wife. Now, Jesus is asking them again, what does God say on the matter? What's the law say on the matter? And notice their reply in verse 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Don't miss the distinction. He asked, what did Moses command? They said, Moses permitted. 
not lost on the detail. They understood the question was also a setup for them. The Pharisees say, well, he permitted it. He didn't say it was a command. He permitted it. And right they are in the way they answer. But that's not what Jesus asked them. Now notice Jesus' reply to their soft answer in verses 5 to 9. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, and they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus, they saw permission in the statement. Jesus appeals to that as a concession. Jesus doesn't answer precisely their response. He goes back to the beginning, and he goes back to what Moses said. The first five books of your Bible are called Pentateuch. They're authored by Moses. So Moses is writing down these stories, but God gave him this information as part of the corpus of the law, the body of the law that he had that God gave to him. So when he's writing down these stories, these accounts, this is what God commanded. He's not saying these are the reasons you can divorce and remarriage. He's remarry. He's saying, what did God start with? And let's look at this very familiar passage briefly. First, notice the hardness of heart. Because you were so stubborn, because you were so bent on sin, because you fought against the law of God, he wrote you this commandment. That's why it's a concession. That's why it was permitted. But, Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, this is what it was supposed to be. Now, you know this, but let's review it. God made man and woman. They're complementary. God designed the husband to leave his home, marry his wife. God designed to become one. Heterosexual, monogamous for life. One man, one woman, one life until one dies. That was what God designed. That was what God made. That was what God created. Jesus starts at the beginning to answer the argument. Now this two becoming one flesh is often lost just in uh, wedding ceremony language. We all like to, you know, the favorite line I get to say as a pastor, minister, uh, oversight of a wedding is to say, it's now my privilege for the very first time to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so because we've just seen two people become one. It's a great mystery. Do you realize that that two becoming one is a closer bond than you have with your child? Scripture doesn't say you and your son or daughter are one. It says two become one. It's a mystery. It's a spiritual mystery, which is why this covenant is so important. Because two become one. And God intended one man and one woman for one lifetime, and they become one flesh. That intimacy is spiritual, not merely physical. That intimacy is emotional, psychological, physical, support. I mean, isn't it amazing? Anyone in marriage knows that you did not marry the woman you thought, you did not marry the man you thought. You know, it's the, old, the, old, the bad old joke. A marriage is like a phone call at midnight. You get a ring and you wake up. What did I do? Who did I marry? You're not the woman I married. You're not the man I married. And you start to realize that her strengths are different than yours. His weakness is different. His strengths are different than yours. And if you grow up, you realize the complementary nature of those two sinful personalities, and they become one. Cindy and I come up on 37 years shortly. That's amazing. She's put up with me for 37 years. We are more one today than we were 36 and some years ago. 
and we understand this better than ever. Doesn't mean she still doesn't confuse me. Doesn't mean I still don't drive her crazy from time to time. But I'm closer to that individual than anybody on the planet. One man, one woman, God designed for one lifetime. That was the intent. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Isn't it interesting that Jesus quotes that in answer to this trap? God said, don't separate it. Let's start at the beginning. Let's don't go to the reasons, the grounds for divorce or remarriage. Let's go to the beginning of what God intended. His subject is clearly focusing on the law of Moses. And of course, this would coincide then with what John the Baptist said to Herod in Mark 16, Mark 6, verse 18. Well, the disciples now have a dilemma, and they, and they voice it when they have Jesus alone, verse 10. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. That, that should be funny to us. I mean, they got the same problem we got. Okay, Jesus, explain this to me. I mean, come on, I understand that first part, created part, of it, but explain it to me, will you? Verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, the her being his former wife. And if, he, and if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So again, no surprise, the disciples ask the same questions we would ask. And this is where I think the scripture is so common sense for us. It doesn't take a seminary degree or a master's degree to understand this. It just takes reading they hear him say these things. They pull him aside. Wait a minute, Jesus. I don't get this. I mean, you're going to have to help me out with this a little bit. I understand that first part, but what do we do about this? Now, Jesus says here something very interesting about divorce remarriage. Verse 12 only occurs in the Gospel of Mark. Nowhere else does it occur in the Gospels. If, if a person divorces in her marriage, they commit adultery. Verse 12 says if she divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. You see, under Jewish law, the woman couldn't divorce her husband. They're under Roman law. Under Roman law, she could divorce her husband. So in a very bizarre way, Jesus is acknowledging the rights of the women have been elevated in modern culture for him. Because in that day and time, she had the right to file a divorce against her husband. Under the Jewish law, she had no right or mechanism. The conundrum is, though, he says they're committing adultery. And adultery was an offense that was dealt with by stoning if you were caught in the act. And you remember the story, of course, when the scribes and Pharisees tried to set up the woman caught in the act of adultery. And the law prescribed she was to be stoned to death. Well, Mark chapter 6, verse 17 to 18 explains that Roman law allowed Herodias to divorce her husband Philip and then remarry Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Great is going to have five Herods. Antipas is the one that's going to play most importantly. So five wives are going to come from these divorce, uh, five, excuse me, five divorce or marriages are going, to, are going to result in a lot of different Roman emperors and, and uh, different tetrarchs and governors out of these divorces and remarriages. But John speaking out on Herod cost him his head. And so all that's the backdrop for the trap. Let me give you some concluding thoughts. Number one, 1 Corinthians 7 has an overarching principle of a remain in the condition in which you were called. Remain in the condition in which you were called. 
So in Corinth, when the gospel came to Corinth and people were embracing belief in Jesus Christ, that he lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, they trusted in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, they went home to an unsaved husband, or unsaved wife, an unsaved employer, unsaved master. And in that Roman culture, which is very different, the Gentile culture, from the Jewish culture, they didn't have Jewish law. They didn't know these backdrop stories. And so what are they going to do? Well, I'm not married to a Christian. I'm going to leave that marriage. And so the overarching principle of 1 Corinthians 7 is to remain in the condition in which you're called. Now let me just put this very practically in a, in a very simple way. If you're in between, wait. Wait. For 15 years, Cindy and I spoke at the Family Life Weekend to Remember conferences all across the United States and overseas. And invariably, we'd have this group on Friday night. You could tell by their posture that didn't want to be there. Someone may have paid their way to come to the conference. Their marriage was in distress. In fact, they did research at Family Life for a number of years and found that between 17 and 21% of the couples that went to that conference were in high distress. And over the weekend, Friday night, of course, you're trying to build a rapport with them and keep them for the weekend. That was our goal. Just stay with us for the weekend. We'd, we'd plea, we'd beg. If you've already got a department, if you've already made plans for your remarriage and someone paid your way, you came here as a last resort, what difference will two days make in the, big, in the grand scheme? We would just plea and beg, stay with us, stay with us. And it was not uncommon. I would say over the 15 years, no less than 12 times, a couple came up at the end of the conference with their divorce papers in a packet and gave it to Cindy and me and said, we're going to try and make this work. Now, I don't know what happened going forward. I have no way of measuring that. But what I draw from that is the world has taught us a brand of theology, a philosophy that says there's all kinds of grounds for divorce and remarriage where God is saying one man, one woman for life and if one of them has had an affair, one is doing this, one is doing that, the so-called innocent party, what does it hurt to wait? You're still hurting. You're not going to feel any better once you file the papers. You start running with a lot of people that are divorced or married, it may help a little bit because you kind of have commiseration. But the Bible and Paul are saying, wait. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe your husband will come to Christ. Maybe your wife will repent. Maybe your wife will come to Christ. Maybe things will change. Maybe that adulterous relationship will fall apart. Does that mean it's going to be happily ever after? No. But once I go through with the divorce, I go through with the remarriage, I close that door pretty soundly. You are in between. I just want to ask you, appeal to you as a friend, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ. Well, it really hurt you to wait in the grand scheme? Secondly, as noted, divorce nor remarriage are unforgivable. Please hear that loud and clear. These are not unforgivable sins. We're all sinners. We all sin because we're sinners. That's the great debate theologically. Do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? People worry about these things. The bottom line is the consequence of sin is death and hell. Every one of you in this room is a big, fat sinner. I'm here to encourage you. I'm a big, fat sinner. We're all sinners. Let's get over it. Let's get over this self-righteousness stuff. Are there consequences from our sins? Set divorce and remarriage aside. Are there consequences from sin? Absolutely. There's guilt. There's shame. 
There's restitution involved. If you steal, if you lie, if you're into pornography, if you have an affair, there will be consequences. I think it was Swindoll that said many years ago, the problem with an affair is you think you're going to get away with it. It haunts, it convicts the Holy Spirit's after you and me. Any divorced person, any remarried person who has grown a little bit in the process will tell you, let me tell you the consequences. Cindy and I have many of our dear friends who've been through divorce, remarriage. We're not mad at them. We don't hate them. They're our dear friends. We've known some for 30 plus years. One I went through college and grad school with, the seminary no less. And his wife had an affair and divorced him. And we, uh, we knew them, we counseled them, we pleaded with his wife not to leave, Cindy and I both, and they end up getting a divorce. She divorces him, she remarries, she has a child from her new marriage. He was probably seven, eight years, a single man, and then eventually remarried. And, and so I kept very close tabs with the, the husband because we were friends. The wife was the one that had the affair and left. And over the years, I watched him go from anger and bitterness and, and depression and I'll never forget a long conversation over Christmas break. And he said, you know, Michael, I've come to the conclusion I've got to relate to her the rest of my life because we've got children together. Every graduation, every, every you know, ceremony, every accomplishment, every wedding, those are my kids too. And he determined that he was going to try to be a civil individual toward his ex. And you know what? When they had the children over there, he hated the way they were raising them. And they come over here, and he spends all his time trying to correct the way they were raising them. There were consequences from that. But I was so impressed with, with his growth. What really impressed me, it was about the 10th year, give or take. We would meet probably once or twice a year and catch up. And he told me, he said, I have to own my culpability in my divorce. Because even though she had the affair, even though she filed, even though she remarried, it took two to have a wedding. And had I been the husband that I should have been, could have been, if I'd have worked that hard at that marriage, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Now, he wasn't commiserating and, you know, stewing in his guilt and shame. He was simply acknowledging, maybe I didn't do all I could have done. I'm not sure the first counselor that ever said it, but Andrew Marshall has said, in 20 years of counseling, I've yet to meet the innocent party. And I don't say that to hurt you. I say that to ask you a simple question. If it took two to get married, there's some culpability in there. If I'm the husband God wants me to be as best as I can, surrounded by people going in the same direction, which is so important, and my wife is the best woman she can be before Christ, surrounded by people going in the same direction, working together on our marriage and family, we got a much better likelihood of staying together, don't we? But you're traveling, you're alone, you're doing your own thing. His career, her career, my career, my career, my checkbook, my money, my vacation, my vacation. Then, you know, the, the road gets wide. And then the trouble begins. Which is one of the reasons Cindy and I do a, a couple's ministry together, our little marriage mentor group, because I want to do something with her. I want to work on that as kindly as I can ask the question, are you culpable? And if so, you know, it's as simple as acknowledging it and asking forgiveness. I can't give you data, but I can give you 30 plus years experience. The couples that Cindy and I know were, whether the one was more egregious in their sin than the other one, 
the individuals who will say, I own some culpability in that, are healthier individuals today. The ones who are ensconced and they were right and he had the affair, she had the affair. I was right and she went off for her career and left me, so forth and so on. I'm not saying that one person isn't perhaps more culpable. I'm just saying that if we were honest enough to analyze our own marriage history. For while God hates divorce, he does not hate you. He doesn't hate you. He hates sin. He hates divorce as much as he hates pornography, as much as he hates stealing, as much as he hates covetousness, as much as he hates narcissism, as much as he hates fill in the blank. He hates all sin. He hates sin so much, and there's no remedy for us that he sent Christ. He hates sin so much, he sent the, the love of his life, the love of his heart, his one and only, his monogonase, the one of a kind, the most remarkable human God-man ever to walk the planet. He hates sin so much, he sent his only, his best, the God-man, to die for you and me. There's no greater redemption. The, the Bible starts with a marriage. The Bible has story, theology, failure, success with marriage and family, and it ends with a wedding. The Lamb of God who comes to marry the bride of Christ. You're part of the bride of Christ. The church, the body of Christ, is the bride of Christ. In the final chapters of Revelation, the most magnificent picture, the most spectacular description is of this wedding feast. Of the bride has made herself ready for the groom, who's the Christ who comes and marries his church. It's one of those, hello, McFly, how do you miss this? It starts with a wedding, story, theology, failure about weddings and marriages. It ends with a wedding. Don't miss the most obvious thing. He so loved the world, and he so hated sin, that he made provision. Remember, there are no losers at the foot of the cross. There's no winners anywhere else. He loves you. He cares about you deeply. He knows about the strange children, the strange husband, the strange wife, the affairs, the pornography, the immorality, on and on and on, the experiment and sexual differences. He, he knows all about it. You and I aren't pulling a thing over his eyes. He loves you. And his best is different than what the world's telling you and me. His design from the beginning was one man, one woman, one lifetime. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. None of it is. But sometimes self-inflicted wounds are more difficult to address. No losers at the foot of the cross, and there's no winners anywhere else. Our Father in heaven, we do love you. We thank you for your word, even though at times it may be hard for us to hear even though our want to rationalize or make exception or excuses runs quickly, you care about each one in this room. The consequences and results of all our sin affect others, whether we admit it or not. Help us with our sin today to flee temptation, to say no to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, to say yes to you, to run to you, to run to help to run to a brother or sister in Christ who can just encourage us and pat us on the back, to surround us with people that are trying to go in the same direction in a culture that's lost its mind.
May we be a fragrant aroma to you. May the marriages in this room be protected. For those that have been hurt, I pray your mercy would be poured out on them in amazing ways. And as the days and weeks and months turn into years, they will see your kindness, your forgiveness, your mercy, and indeed your blessing in their future lives. There are no sins that are not forgivable. And we are so grateful. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.